0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, a podcast for leaders everywhere doing their best to learn and lead in a rapidly changing world with your host, Helen Woodward. We're here to share leadership learning from everyday work and research, helping leaders and teams be their best. So wherever you are, when you listen, I hope you find something to make you smile, a new insight and a question to think about. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, Today my guest is Alex Merry. Alex, you're a public speaking coach and author of Make It Count. Welcome to Let's Talk Leadership.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Alex, would you like to tell us first of all, how did you get to be a speaking coach? How did this happen?
1: Uh, I think maybe the first thing I should say is that I never asked for this. I totally fell into this and I think if my teachers could see me now, they'd be very confused as to how I have ended up doing this sort of job, being relatively quiet at school and actually spending majority of my life avoiding public speaking like the plague. Couldn't think of anything worse. My brother, on the other hand, give him a mic, he will get up and do some karaoke. Absolutely loves it. Center of attention, spotlight, loved it. Me, couldn't think of anything worse. So I sort of say that because I don't think too many people who fall into my profession come from that sort of background. A lot of people have gone through Sort of drama or performance style backgrounds before they end up in a place like this. And my journey couldn't have been really further from that. I found myself co-running a startup in London with four others that was helping charities raise money. And we grew the company very quickly, and the CEO, I was CEO, but the CEO, had this brainwave of an idea that the best way to grow the business and recruit are, people was to spend three months on the road delivering talks at universities every single day. Uh, it's a good job he told me that after I accepted the job proposal because it was never really part of the plan. Really, then just a few different elements happened through there. Through repetitive speaking and delivering the same thing every single day, I started to, to learn and grow and develop my speaking skills. I was asked to speak at a TEDx event 2012 kind of time, that sort of time. I'd never heard of TED at the time. And then a week before that event was due to happen, it got canceled, so to this day, I've never given one of those talks. But I wanted to get involved in TED in some way, shape, or form, because I just thought it was cool. So I ended up spending the next two years trying to convince TED to let me run one of their events, and they said no a lot, and eventually I think they got fed up with me, and they eventually said yes. And that first group of speakers I had speak on that stage, I was just helping them tweak certain aspects of their talk and things started to happen very organically from there.
0: Because mm-hmm. it's a tough application process to run TEDx's, isn't it? It's, it's. I mean, they're really, they're really on it with the criteria and what's acceptable and what you have to provide. And
1: I think they've had some bad experiences, so they tightened their experience, their their sort of criteria up for uh, for everyone else to follow. Which I think was a good thing. You know that that process, that two year journey in itself really shaped my understanding of what they're really looking for and what really makes a good talk so it was good for me.
0: Mm, mm. So you're doing a bit of myth busting at the start here because I think it's really easy to assume that somebody who is a kind of voice coach would be somebody like you say who had a background in drama or kind of vocal coaching or kind of singing quite extrovert and quite dramatic and actually you're saying do you know what it was a struggle for me. It, it just wasn't something that, you know, I didn't start it because of the love of it. Actually, I just had to get good at it.
1: That That's exactly it. And I think the light bulb moment for me was what some of those TED Talks or TEDx Talks at TEDx Clapham went on to do. One Talk Done Well can be absolutely transformative for somebody's career, for somebody's business. And I think the reason why I do what I do now is not because of the act of I don't wake up in the morning if I've got to deliver a workshop or deliver a talk thinking, oh, what a great day. <laughs> the opposite. I'm still not there. Still don't love it. But what it can go on to achieve, that domino effect, that is so, so satisfying.
0: Mm. And what what I'm thinking as well is that if I was coming to somebody for vocal support and speaking support, what's kind of nice is that I'd be coming to somebody who who has had to go through the struggle it wasn't easy for you so you understand some of that struggle so i'm um, i'm guessing does that make it easier for you to be empathic do you think towards the people that you work with
1: i think it does but i hadn't realized that that was a strength until about two years ago and i've been doing this for eight years now i had always really sort of hidden that fact i was always majoring on a lot of the things that people think are important for credibility running london startup coo all of that stuff. Actually. For me, at least, I've had to dig a little bit deeper and be really honest about some of my own experiences, and I do think that that can help other people for sure.
0: Mm, mm. So, is success at public speaking essential for leaders? Do we all need to be good at it?
1: I, I think essential, no, but I do think it's important. I think I actually think that being able to listen is far more important than being able to speak. How lovely! But if you can speak well. My God, does it help? I think one of the things that I found quite interesting is that majority of leaders haven't really had any formal speaking training, which given it's such a, a stable, consistent, important part of their job, find well, a little bit baffling. You know, if you've got to cast visions, inspire your team, sell your product, why wouldn't you? Because it can be this force multiplier for everything else that you're doing. We often think of ourselves as overworked, Well, if we communicate a little bit better, maybe it can change that. And I I tend to find that those who can speak well can get there quicker.
0: That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So if I if I think about people who immediately pop to mind as great orators, um, I think of people like Barack Obama, um uh, Brene Brown, Baroness Shirley Williams, whose leaving speech in the House of Commons, sorry, House of Lords, I thought was just brilliantly delivered and beautiful. So they're they're knowledgeable. Um, They share it in a way which is believable and understanding. They come over as authentic. They have humor. They have warmth. Um, You know, you feel like they bring their whole selves to the gig, you know. So can you learn that or is that, are they gifted or can we learn that?
1: Everyone starts at a different place. Some are certainly naturally more predisposed to it than others, but it's absolutely something that you can learn. And one of the most interesting parts of my job is actually not necessarily focusing on people's delivery, it's focusing on their content. You can 10x the quality of a talk or a presentation that you're doing without changing any of your delivery, but maybe changing the examples that you might use to back up your points or the stories that you tell. tell those in the right way. A lot of the rest take care of itself. This idea that when you know that what you've got to say is good, it can actually change the way we feel about the content and the way we deliver that content to the people that we're speaking to.
0: Mm. So one of the people whose work I read quite a lot is a coach called Alan Sealer, who's written a series of books called Coaching for the Human Soul, which I find hugely helpful. One of the points he makes very clearly is when we speak, we speak because we want people to listen to us. But of course, speaking doesn't guarantee people are going to listen to us. How can we improve the odds on that?
1: <laughs> it's a, It's a really good question. And I think you, you mentioned some of the traits that you know, your Barack Obamas and, and Brenny Browns and so forth have. I think one of the big things is to stop treating presentations like they're a memory test. I think so many people do, but they're not. You might spend a lot of time working on your scripts. You know, some of the top presenters in the world will spend a huge amount of time agonizing over every word. You don't need to do that for 99% of the presentations that you deliver, but Having this focus and this expectation that the success of a presentation is down to how much of what you plan to say you actually end up saying, that is not how a a successful presentation should be be measured. And I think that's a really good starting point.
0: That's interesting. Okay, so what you're touching on there is some of the kind of myths and beliefs that we can have that hold us back. Some of the ideas that we carry in our heads that we possibly don't even notice we're carrying them. Mm. What are some of the myths and beliefs that kind of people who come to you, gets in their way that you know because we get in our own way sometimes don't we with ideas that we have that we hold on to you know this is definitely true unless I unless I remember every sentence of my presentation it's been a failure what else do people come to you with that holds them back
1: this idea that past performance equals future performance I think a lot of our confidence can be based around how previous presentations have gone I certainly know from from my own experience, particularly when I was building up that previous business, if I built up a string of really good presentations, I'd be walking around, you know, I'm a pretty amazing presenter. Got it. Got it nailed. But at some point, <laughs> <laughs> it comes to kick you and you get a humbling reminder that it's not all so easy. And also vice versa. You know, we can agonize if we have a presentation that doesn't go that well. And we've all had one, at least one. And anyone who says they haven't is lying. It's much harder to, to walk into that next presentation with the confidence that you need to really get that message across. So this idea that what's happened before is a reflection of what's going to happen next is not the case. And understanding that it doesn't matter how experienced a presenter you are, you are still going to go on a journey. You are still going to have good days. You're still going to have bad days and that is okay. And I think that's a really good place to start interestingly on a if i take this to the other end of the spectrum one of the reasons people don't come to see me is because they think winging it is good enough Mm. and i really think that the best speakers will really think about their audience they're very deliberate about the message that they want to share they have a very clear purpose what they want to achieve from the presentation and the audience appreciates that because it's their time that's being used up listening to that person so taking the time to really consider your audience and the journey that you want to take them on and the big word legacy, but the legacy that you want to have your talk to have. I think these are all really important points that audiences appreciate if you can get it right.
0: Mm, That's a really lovely point, actually, that when people are giving their time to listen to you, to not prepare, it's it's like you don't value their time. Yeah. Um, And I have seen, I've seen people wing it and it go badly wrong, you know, but I mean, they kind of might look like they're getting away with it. But as people get up, oh, no, they haven't got away with it. You know, it's because people are muttering and mumbling. You know, it's not good. Yeah. The co- the confidence point is interesting. You know, I, I think I was more confident when I was younger. You know, as you get older, you start to be more aware of the pitfalls. Um, and then I went through a phase of being a civil servant. So, and then all of my talks were absolutely scripted. Because if there was any misrepresentation after an event, you know, I would be absolutely ready to say, here's my script. This is what I actually said. So I went through a very scripted phase.
1: How did you find that?
0: Um, it, it, it kind of helped me feel steady that I was absolutely on message, which in that role, you absolutely have to be because you are there to explain government policy, not defend it, but explain it. Um, and so actually communicating that as clearly as you possibly can is good. Um, and it means that you get your preparation really clear. So I I didn't mind it because it felt contextually appropriate is probably the best way to say it. Um, I I wouldn't say it was a sort of spiritual home (laughs) (laughs) um, because my style generally would be much more facilitative. You know, so I would be much happier uh, working with a group and, and working with the questions and working with the knowledge and understanding that the group brought um and then i then i have given a tedx so i have done the kind of you have to memorize a 17 minute talk and and uh, and deliver it and that was a really different experience
1: it's very very common i think almost all tedx events force their speakers to be very rigid on their scripts and i look back at some of the most successful talks of all time particularly some of the early ted talks you can tell they they turned up they knew their content inside out back to front but they weren't ri- they, they weren't remembering the word by word. And I ran three TEDx events, and looking back at some of the, the areas where I fell foul was forcing speakers to be that rigid on their script, because that was the culture, I suppose, that, that I was in. You know, this is, this is what creates a great talk. And I look back at some of the talks, and I think, they could have been even better. Oh, interesting. And that's a shame.
0: Yeah. 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 So I, I mean, I got mine down to kind of to help me remember, I got mine down to kind of three keywords per slide so that I kind of orientate myself back to one of those three keywords on the slide. Got you. Um, and I also learned some British Sign Language, actually, to help me kind of embed keywords as well. Oh, wow. So, And that, that was, yeah, so the more senses we have involved in the learning, the more it's embedded, you know. So that started me off on a little journey learning British Sign Language, which I now have a level two of.
1: I love that. That's a great story.
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. And it's been good, actually, because I've been able to use it a few times to, to kind of help smooth things over and sort things out with people, which has been fun. You know, that's been cool. But I'm I'm interested about how do you help people overcome presentation anxiety?
1: Presentation anxiety, it sort of links back to what I was saying a little bit earlier around reflect and really try and work out where your confidence comes from. So we talked a little bit about momentum-based confidence, which is something that I've absolutely experienced. Another type of confidence I've had is job title confidence. Oh, well, I'm COO. Of course you've got to listen to me. You know, walking on with that title is awesome. <laughs> or when I was, you know, I was 21 and with a big title that I didn't deserve, perhaps at the time. And there was a really interesting thing that happened, actually. So when we we eventually shut that charity fundraising business down because, We didn't have a robust enough business model. We dragged it through a hedge backwards for about four years. But because I'd started to get a few clients here and there, I thought, okay, well, let's see where this goes. And things started to uh, organically grow. Then I was asked to deliver uh, a few talks as part of my job. And suddenly I found this crippling fear come about that I hadn't experienced since before I was COO. And I suddenly realized that because I'm now a public speaking coach, the expectation on me to deliver or at least the perceived expectation on me to deliver an incredible talk every single time, just absolutely wiped me out. So my job title suddenly became this massive hindrance. And I ended up going to therapy for that specific issue. And one of the questions that I got asked by my therapist that completely changed the way I think about presenting was, how important is it that your audience likes you? And it really really made me think and what i realized was running a one person business at the time which is pretty lonely it's pretty important they like me actually <laughs> and if we if we really look at this and you know maybe people will listen to this and and watch other talks and next time they see other talks some of the very very best speakers aren't going up there to want to be liked by their audience. They're trying to get a message across. They're trying to deliver some kind of change or experience for the audience. It's not about being liked and it's been a really good learning and lesson for me. And if you can let go, I'm not saying it's easy and I still work on it, but if you can let go of this idea that your audience has to like you, it can take away a lot of the pressure that you might have and might be feeling in the lead up to a presentation.
0: That's really interesting. It's certainly not something I'd thought of. So that that's that's really interesting to hear that you've given us real food for thought there. Let me ask you this then, supposing you're giving a, a talk, you know, you've got a big audience and you just lose the plot. You just lose your place, you panic. What, what would be your advice if like the worst happens when you just, your bottle goes?
1: So I think the first thing to say is audiences actually like mistakes. They they provide a glimpse into the real you. We always walk on with a persona of some sort that we're carrying when we're presenting. And as soon as the, as soon as your plan's gone out of the window, the real you suddenly comes out and it's a real opportunity to connect with the people that you're speaking to. I think the single biggest mistake that I see people make in that scenario is they freeze. In all honesty, when we forget our trail of thought, we can almost always tell that it's coming. Two or three sentences before, which we suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute, I have no idea what's coming up here, but I'm going to continue finishing these sentences and then I'm going to stop. And the second you stop, tension enters the room. There's a massive elephant. The audience is wondering, are they going to pull themselves back together? That pressure is then reflected onto the speaker who's finding it even harder to find the words that they've got to share next. And in a normal conversational scenario, if we were chatting with someone and we, lose, we lost our train of thought, which we do all the time, by the way, we wouldn't just freeze, we just tell them. So I've completely forgotten where I was going to go with that. And then I'll say, it might come back. It might not. We're just going to move on anyway, and then move to something that you do remember. And as long as the audience knows that you've got a plan and you take away that emotional uncertainty and build up, they're happy. What they don't like is, oh, am I going to have to sit through this agony?
0: Interesting. That's interesting. Just when you were talking about that, it was reminding me of a a time when I was I was presenting to a, a, a room of about 120 leaders for, um, who were all kind of heads of department in a large organization about how we were going to make some organizational workforce changes. So you know the tension's kind of high, you know, because everybody's kind of everybody's gone into kind of survival mode. What does it mean for me and my job? You know, um, and at the time my son was quite young, and and my idea was to bring in some Legos that he he'd kind of made, and he'd made this kind of Lego lion. And and talk about how actually, you know, we've got the blocks and um, what we're looking at is how we're going to reorganize in a way that makes a different organization. But, you know, jobs are safe. And as I was doing this and holding it up and, you know, people like it when you talk about your children, that kind of thing. The head of this lion fell off and
1: smashed on the floor. Oh, my goodness.
0: <laughs> just Because fortunately for me, I just burst out laughing because I did think it was hilarious. And so did they. Um, so we kind of I was extremely embarrassed. But but actually it was all right because people kind of connected and people laughed and people smiled and people talked with me afterwards and said that was really funny. And I said, Yeah, I know it was. And it, it actually helped build relationships.
1: Yeah, I remember just before my wedding, I was actually Livia just walked up the aisle and the vicar sort of opens, you know, my heart is thumping. And the vicar opens and he goes, Today we're here to celebrate. The marriage of alexandra and he suddenly stopped he realized he got my name wrong and everyone burst out laughing and it, <laughs> i don't think they did it on purpose <laughs> but it's amazing what being able to break that tension can do for everyone there and unwittingly or not, unplanned or not who cares it, it it had the right effect and you handled it the right way it could have easily gone the other way People, oh no and then it has this massive knock-on effect for the rest of what they've got to say.
0: Yeah, nice. So there's there's two things here about messing up. One is laugh and the other is kind of pick up to where you were, Just to explain what's happened. You know what? I've just, I've made a mistake. I've lost my place. But what I'm going to do is such and such. Exactly that. Um, so that you just kind of almost kind of help the audience feel safe because they know what's happening. Yeah.
1: That's exactly that. Yeah.
0: Nice. Nice and um, one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is give people something to make them smile i feel like we've given people quite a lot to make them smile already <laughs> but i'm wondering if you've got a story or something that you want to share that just just actually helps people who perhaps are listening and are really struggling with this you know what can they do that would just help them laugh about it a bit more and have a bit more humor about
1: it four years into my public speaking coaching journey i was invited to Nick Jones's house, he's the founder of Moonpig and one of the people probably known from Dragon's Den. It was for a, a weekend with 40 other entrepreneurs. I'd been sort of introduced to this group as the guy who would help the leader of these entrepreneurs with their talks. Massive hype, loads of people knew who I was. Nobody, I knew who nobody else was. It was the first my first sort of introduction to the group. And there was this hecha evening happening on the first night. And have you, have you come across Pecha Kucha com, uh, presentations before?
0: No, no.
1: The idea behind the format is it's 20 slides, 20 seconds per slide on an automatic timer. So you aren't in control of what's happening behind you. You've just got to try and keep the pace. And it means your talk lasts six minutes, 40 seconds, and it forces you not to ramble, be quite creative, not take yourself too seriously, et cetera. Except I did take myself far too seriously. And I agonized for weeks about how i was going to open this talk that i wanted to give and i was sort of testing some ideas around free speech and um what i thought i'd do is do something that nobody would expect me to do which is freeze for the first slide. so and i'm not even an actor i mean this is this you can tell the state i must have been in to think that that was a good idea i've got to pretend that i have choked on stage essentially and so that was the plan And so I had this whole thing set up where the first slide was going to be blank. I essentially choked for that first 20 seconds. And then the second slide would come up and say, gotcha. Then I was going to reel into this talk. And anyway, the person who was dealing with the slides thought that my first slide was gotcha. Totally threw me. Opener completely ruined. And then just as I was trying to get myself over the fact that this opener had ruined, the power cuts out and i then had to spend the next 5 minutes essentially holding the stage trying to keep things going before i could actually deliver the thing i had to go on and deliver it still i don't know whether it makes me laugh but it, it makes me cringe <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i'm sure it does but but actually what you're sharing as well is you know however much preparation sometimes stuff just happens and we have to find a way through it at the time
1: exactly that yeah you and it's okay it doesn't They've, they still talk to me, all of that lot. They still ask me for help. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily a reflection. I think we, we often make the mistake of thinking that our audience cares far more about our presentation than they actually do. They probably haven't given your presentation a second's thought until you, stand, uh, until you walk up. Yet we can get out for those really high stakes scenarios. We can get, get into our heads that that is all they're thinking about. It's just not the case.
0: So I'm intrigued now. Because you've shared with us that, that public speaking, you, you don't have a drama background. Public speaking hasn't been something that you kind of loved. It was something that you had to learn to do. You've shared some mess ups. So why do people come to you, Alex? What is it? What, when you ask them for feedback, when they endorse you, what is it that you're bringing to them that, that draws them back to you? Because something clearly is
1: i think it's this idea that what we believe a good presenter needs to have and to be isn't actually what they need to have classic traits to stand up in front of an audience the first thing you should do is speak slowly that's who right sometimes you might want to start your talk slowly yes you have mitigate for fight or flight but if you want to have a, a real connection with your audience actually conversation conversational tone is is really probably the most effective way of, of doing that. I also put a lot of emphasis on the quality of your message and the journey that you're going to take your audience on. I think this idea that it's so important to meet your audience where they're at and take them somewhere that they've not been before. If You can get that point A and point B worked out. It can really significantly improve the impact of, of what you do. You know, we, we look at TED and we see some of our favourite talks and we think, my goodness, I'd love to be as good as that one day. But what you don't see is all of the editing that has been done on those talks to make them look as good as they are. It is the Instagram of public speaking. And some of the talks that, where people say, um, even some of the talks where people forget their words, they go completely off piece. often the ones that are, are remembered the most.
0: You told me that the other day about the editing and I was really surprised. I didn't know that. So that was, that was really interesting. And I'm glad you've shared that today as well. I think that'll bring, bring a great deal of encouragement to people, actually. So we, we always like to finish with a question for people to reflect on. So is there a question or something that you think, if there was one question that we can usefully reflect on to help us develop our presentational skills, what would that question be, Alex?
1: So I had to think about this, uh, full disclosure. <laughs> Helen emailed me. I did and told me that this is a question that's going to be asked, and I'm glad I had a little bit of time to think about it. And the question that I can sum up and and get people to think in the right way about the presentations they've got to deliver, uh, here's the question: How are your presentations challenging conventional thinking? Ooh. If you can articulate that, then there's a very, very good chance that you are taking your audience somewhere new. And we talked a little bit earlier about this idea of how do we make people want to listen to what it is that we're going to say? And there's so much on a voice delivery front that you can talk about. But for me, more than anything, our greatest tool as presenters is curiosity. Can we harness our audience's curiosity? And if we can create regular peaks, curiosity peaks throughout the talk, people will stay engaged for longer. So this idea of unpredictability I think is important. And if you've got a clear journey that takes them from, this is the status quo right now, this is what you all believe, To this is way, what you need to believe come the end of the presentation that I'm delivering. If you can find an interesting, unpredictable way to get them to that place, your job is done.
0: Mm, that's so interesting. And I love that. I love that because you're, you're right about unpredictability. And one of the things I spend a lot of time working with leaders on is how, how we orientate ourselves around uncertainty. Whether our orientation is one of anxiety, or whether we can help ourselves move into a mood of curiosity, so that's a that's a really I love that. Yeah, it's it's good actually. It's it's very I find it really useful, and it's it's a really interesting way to work when you're coaching leaders. But that kind of culture of curiosity is something that Jim Collins talks about a lot, isn't it, in his books? But I really like that idea. Can you can you move your audience towards some? unconventional thinking
1: some of your best content as a presenter will come from being curious about the subject you don't need to have all of the answers but you do need to be really interested in it you know there was a talk that happened uh, a few years ago while I was out in New York by someone called Rutger Bregman and he walked on stage and you know a lot of people might start their talks with a question to try and engage the audience that's sort of the idea put your hands up here for not all of that stuff mm-hmm. but he walked on stage and go, I want to start with a question why do the poor make such poor decisions? And then he pauses. And this was just after lunch, day three of this TED conference. I was exhausted, mentally shattered. I was playing on my phone, wasn't paying any attention. He says that question, it riles up emotion, right? I'm already, there's conflict. he's created that conflict. And I just wanted to see how he got himself out of that hole. And if you can ask questions that challenge your audience, But get them thinking that is there's that silent engagement there that you need. Bring them in on the problem. Make them the detective. And you've got something that could be really quite impactful.
0: Mm. Alex, that's been that's that's really interesting. And it's not at all what I expected, but I really love that we've ended up on a note of curiosity, helping your audience be the detectives and solve the problem. So it's been brilliant to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk Leadership and for sharing so honestly and openly, and and I have to say for preparing so kind of kindly and fully, which we really appreciate. How can people get in contact with you, Alex?
1: The easiest way to get in contact with me is on LinkedIn. I spend all of my life there. <laughs> <laughs> so come come find me on LinkedIn and that's a great place to start. It's
0: been brilliant to talk with you.
1: Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Leadership. For more, head over to HelenMGConsulting.com and find out about leadership programs and leadership coaching, helping you and your team be the best version of yourselves.